This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. As expectations over healthcare reform increase in the lead up to GE15 here in Malaysia, which is happening um, on the 19th of November, as we're all aware, we'll be taking a step back in today's show, um, a step back from the Malaysian context to look at healthcare systems in various countries across Southeast Asia and perhaps on the, the larger Asian region as well. And, you know, to get some in insights into how these different health systems achieve universal health coverage. And uh, we know that it's not just Malaysia, but many other countries that are faced with challenges like the burden of non-communicable diseases, an increasingly aging population, um, disparities in access to health care, as well as um, dealing with the increasing uh, rising cost of health care and how to finance that moving forward. So joining me today is Sejal Mistry, Regional Director. Director for Southeast Asia from Access Health International to explore the strengths and weaknesses of um, the different healthcare systems in our neighboring countries and perhaps what lessons Malaysia can take away from this, especially now that we have um, all these dialogue and uh, discussions around healthcare reform. Hi, Sejal. Thank you so much for joining me um, in Singapore, where you're based. How are you? I'm doing quite well, Xiaoyik, and thank you for inviting me to this program. I'm, I'm really excited to have this discussion. Thank you so much. And uh, perhaps you could give us first a little bit of an introduction about what Access Health is and what do you do? Sure. So Access Health is a nonprofit organization and think tank. It's headquartered in the United States, which you might hear from my accent. I am from the U.S., but interestingly, most of it, our operations are based in Asia, and uh, we have offices in India and in Singapore, and I cover the Southeast Asia region for Singapore. So our focus is really on looking at health systems and the way we can promote healthcare access um, through, uh, I would say, making sure health systems are robust. Our, our mission is, and our vision is that all people have the right to high quality, affordable healthcare, no matter who they are, no matter where they live. And so we really take this mission very seriously, um, but we take a systems level approach to, to address it. And uh, what, what exactly does that mean in terms of the work on the ground that you do? Do you engage with governments uh, or do you work with healthcare providers? Um, what does it look like? Yeah, so we actually do a combination, and I would say, again, at the systems level. So we will work with governments, we will work with uh, private sector, uh, whether it's pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, again, focusing a lot on the health financing front, um, to even technology companies. You know, we're trying to also help people understand that healthcare is everybody's business, and you don't have to be a formal part of the uh, healthcare sector to realize that you have a role to play and you are impacted by it. And of course, we've learned that from COVID-19. So I think um, we really try to take this approach where we bring stakeholders together to say, what can we do to improve access to healthcare services? And let's put our best minds together and figure it out. So considering that you actually have this bird's eye view mm. internationally as well as in um, all the different regions, I was wondering whether, I, I guess not all issues are universal. Some Every country has their own unique um, issues and challenges, but really as a global society, 
What are the biggest issues, would you say, when it comes to the health of people? And, and as you say, at the end of the day, the mission is to deliver high quality, affordable health care that everyone has a right to, right? It's a universal human right. But as a global society, are we really seeing that dream being achieved? That's an excellent question. And you said a word that kind of hit it on the nail, universal, and it goes to a concept known as universal health coverage. This is a principle uh, that world leaders have espoused since 2015 um, as part of the um, Sustainable Development Goals. And Sustainable Development Goal 3.8 really puts forward the commitment that all people have the right to high quality, affordable health care, no matter where they live, um, without incurring financial hardship. And again, this, it's no coincidence that our mission statement is very much aligned with the goal of universal health coverage. And I think what's exciting about that is whether you are sitting in Malaysia, Singapore, or Bolivia, or, or the UK, we have really committed as a global society that people should get access to the services that they need and not go bankrupt from it. And I think when we look at the context of where healthcare demand and needs are going, this is a really important principle. So, you know, as, as unique as Malaysia's situation and profile might be, we're, we're kind of in a global movement together to make sure that we protect the rights of citizens, that we um, ensure physical health as well as financial health. And, you know, in terms of certain uh, elements that could be barriers for in, for people achieving uh, that kind of access, right? What would we be looking at? You said, you said the word bankrupt. So the cost uh, would yes. be one thing, wouldn't it? Are we still seeing um, issues? And I'm sure in many low, low-income countries, um, actual physical and geographical uh, barriers are still present as well, right? Sure. And, you know, one thing I want to clarify is the challenges to achievement of universal health coverage or just being able to live at an individual level with not worrying about your healthcare costs is, is not just constrained to low-income countries. It's, it's really become, unfortunately, a universal problem. So when you talk about barriers, um, it, it's, it's funny, we have this concept called the iron triangle in healthcare, where we see the trade-offs between if you want really good high-quality access and you want it for everybody, and you want to do it, you know, inexpensively, those are, those are always at tension with each other. And so the barriers to healthcare kind of come when these three perspectives or these three angles are, are out of alignment. And we want, each country is struggling to find its own balance. And what we find is at a systems level, since I'm taking the bird's eye view, is that many of the countries, uh, be it Indonesia, be it India, be it Malaysia, are really straining at the seams um, to be able to fulfill that commitment of universal health coverage. And at the individual level, um, as you mentioned, uh, physical distance barriers, financial barriers, um, at the moment you have, uh, let's say if it's a cancer or a major heart attack, for many people, that's you're just one healthcare event or illness away from poverty. And these are really difficult choices that people are making between getting the treatment they need and making sure that they're in a sound financial situation. 
And uh, I'd like to take this opportunity now to look across the region. Um, perhaps you could give us uh, a snapshot of what some of the healthcare systems in Malaysia's neighboring countries look like, um, how they may differ from Malaysia's system. And um, uh, I think from there, we could then explore uh, some, uh, you know, some, some of the strengths and weaknesses. But perhaps first, the, the sort of 101 on how these systems work. And I will leave it to you to, you know, choose what you'd like to contrast with Malaysia or uh, which countries you'd like to start with. Yeah, so let's start again. I'm glad we we talked about universal health coverage because what we're seeing in different systems in the region is really um, recently, I would say, uh, moments where that political commitment has come to fruition and countries are moving towards achievement of universal health coverage. So let's start with Indonesia. Indonesia had a fairly fragmented system of different uh, social health insurance schemes, very few people have private insurance, and again, largely out-of-pocket expenditures. And out-of-pocket expenditures mean basically uh, the money you pay out of your own pocket for healthcare services. And this is a really important concept I'll come to again. Um, but in Indonesia, at the presidential level, um, at, at the head of state level, I would say, Joko Widodo made that commitment um, to universal health coverage. And what we saw in 2014 is that Indonesia at that time launched the largest social health insurance program in the world. And they did it with a commitment to cover everybody in Indonesia under this national health insurance program. And what we have seen since 2014 is within a span of five years, they've reduced the proportion of health financing from out-of-pocket payments, meaning um, the amount of money that is being paid for healthcare is decreasingly from people's own uh, finances, but increasingly supported by the government and other services. And this is really important because experts agree that out-of-pocket financing, when you are faced with a hospital bill, you know, unexpectedly, you know, high hospital bill, this is the worst way of financing healthcare. So 2014 was a pivotal moment um, in, in Indonesia, and they established a program called JKN, Jaminan Kesehatan Nasional, and excuse my accent there. Um, but since then, they've reduced out-of-pocket uh, payments. They've increased the quality and coverage of health services. And now about 80% of the population, I would say a little over 80%, are what we deem as covered under universal health coverage. That means that they are able to access quality services um, without going bankrupt or uh, without facing significant financial burden. And this is really important. Now, in contrast to Malaysia, um, the Indonesian system, and we'll see that many systems are like this, is, is a public health insurance, which means that there are uh, a significant portion of financing um, of the health system that comes from the state, that comes from the government, but there are also contributions from individuals. And what we see is that essentially in Indonesia, um, for those in the formal sector, if you think your office workers and, and sort of larger companies will uh, pay contributions um, to JKN, regardless of uh, whether or not they utilize it. It's really this sense of pooling the country's financing to support a system of affordable health care for everybody. 
Now, this becomes a, sometimes a bit uh, interesting when we look from a health financing perspective, because you have people who are contributing that are not using it, and we can talk about why that is. Um, and you have a large portion of the population, I'd say the majority of the population who are not contributing and who are subsidized by the government. So these are low and middle income people, poor, near poor, that are entirely subsidized by the government. So um, we have a social health insurance and it is similar to Malaysia in that the government bears a significant part of the health financing, but there is a, a, a portion that is contributed by uh, individuals, um, particularly private sector employees. Uh, you say that um, the contention is uh, is sometimes about the fact that um, everyone contributes to this pool, but some people may not be using it. Now, now um, why might that be? I'm sure everyone needs to access the healthcare system for at, at any point in their lives, right? Yeah, absolutely. And for these systems to work, especially social health insurance, um, you need everyone to contribute. Otherwise, financially and as a system, it collapses. Because what happens is that if the only people who are utilizing and contributing to the system are people who are largely sick and of ill health, you don't have enough financing um, uh, to sustain that system. So I just wanted to put out there that it is a compulsory system. And you will see in many countries that have social insurance, it's compulsory, it has to be. Um, now, why are people who have access to uh, this system in, in, in Indonesia, it's comprehensive access, meaning that everything is covered by the government that is medically necessary and there are certain exclusions, but in principle, everything is covered. Now, I think unlike Malaysia, um, no, excuse me, like Malaysia and many other countries, um, the public sector is plagued by long waiting lines, um, chronic stockouts and deficits. It's not easy to get to. Um, and it's, it's just, whether real or not, the perception is of a lower quality care or a patient experience. And so what we find is in Indonesia, in Malaysia, and in many countries, the moment people have some avenue to access and pay for private health care, they will go there. It's just, it's, it's a much better experience and you can go there when you need it rather than waiting two, three months. And this becomes critical if you have cancer, for example, and you need radiotherapy, you need oncology, chemotherapy, um, and it's really time critical. Uh, so this is one of the challenges is um, you need financing for public health systems to meet the demand, but they're all overloaded. They really are. And with Indonesia's experience uh, through the social health insurance, have they actually been able to reduce that gap in terms of the perception of, and again, I, I stress this as well, right? It's a perception that the quality or the patient experience is lower. Um, but with social health insurance providing more funding, are they able to actually reduce that gap? So in Indonesia, I think it's it's very interesting because the, so you have, the Ministry of Health that oversees a program and you have an entity called BPJS, which is the implementer of the social insurance program. And I think they've taken um, great strides in focusing on improving the quality of care. And a key tool in Indonesia, and I would say throughout the region, is the use of digital technologies to um, optimize the way health systems are functioning, where how care is delivered, uh, what that patient experience is like. I think there is still a long way to go in Indonesia as in many places. 
Um, but I think they're moving in the right direction. And it will be important also to recognize that I think increasingly governments, um, as maybe the discussions are going in Malaysia, are recognizing that it is a huge burden for the state to take care of providing health care for everybody. What is the role of the private sector? What is the role of private hospitals? What is the role of private insurance? Um, and can we start coming to mixed models of financing and delivery in a way that makes it sustainable um, for the government, for individuals, and people have that choice. But you, you will start seeing that government is improving on public services, but at the same time, encouraging people also to use private services. Um, there are some really good rationales to do so. All right. Um, we'll continue this conversation after a quick break. We're really starting to get into um, this notion of sort of being able to look beyond what we've been so used to in Malaysia, um, you know, a very highly subsidized public healthcare system, uh, the private sector being quite separate, uh, you know, up until recent times and only financed through out-of-pocket payments or private insurance. And we're looking at how I think it really is time for Malaysia to have these, to make some tough decisions, but um, it's going to be very necessary uh, in the long run for us to be able to continue delivering. Uh, and I, I love this term that Seja has been using, universal health coverage, which means just Basically, at the end of the day, every single person um, being able to access high quality, affordable healthcare. So we're doing that um, by taking a look today at how healthcare systems work in some other countries across Southeast Asia and perhaps Asia as well. I'm speaking to Sejal Mistry, Regional Director for Southeast Asia from Access Health International. And we'll continue uh, perhaps with some other examples when we come back. Stay tuned to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiaoik. My guest joining me on Zoom today from Singapore is Sejal Mistry, Regional Director for Southeast Asia from Access Health International. We're discussing what universal health coverage uh, looks like across um, neighboring countries here in Southeast Asia. We've started looking at Indonesia, which, uh, in a relatively short period of time since 2014 has launched the largest social health insurance scheme in the world, uh, and has made great strides in, um, what it's trying to achieve, which is basically to reduce the proportion of out of pocket payments for healthcare, which can be devastating, um, when you have a health crisis um, like a cancer diagnosis or a heart condition that may require, you know, a, a very um, substantive uh, surgeries and treatments. Uh, and instead, um, you know, allowing people to be able to finance those um, medical costs from a pool of um, uh, contributions, uh, both from the state and as well as uh, contributions from individuals. In Malaysia, we've been having these discussions also about whether social health insurance is appropriate for us. It's been a conversation that's been going on for a very long time. We can't seem to get anywhere on it because um, it requires a lot of political commitment, uh, as Sejal has said, and Indonesia 
has committed to that. Um, and what that's what we're, we want to do today. We want to look at what other countries have been doing and see what lessons Malaysia can glean from them. So apart from Indonesia, Sejal, is there um, any other example that you'd like to raise? Yes, there are several. And, and one, one um, clarification I want to make, at the time, Indonesia launched the largest scheme, but very soon thereafter, a couple of years after, India, country of over a billion people, launched the largest scheme of universal health coverage. And that was a massive undertaking. Again, we're talking about over a billion people uh, with a wide variety um, of, uh, of uh, states uh, that uh, are responsible for the implementation of universal health coverage. And so, again, in India, there is um, a mix of tax-supported, um, I would say, what they called uh, health and wellness centers, which really focus on developing the primary health care center, and then a social health insurance program that only supports the poorest of the poor. And what we have then in India is a huge missing middle. And I bring up the missing middle because this is a common problem, whether it's in India, Indonesia, and I would say to some extent in Malaysia is that you have people at the very top of the income pyramid who are covered by private insurance and get a full suite of services and are less vulnerable to the financial shocks of a healthcare event. And then at the bottom, you have people who are highly subsidized. Um, so even in systems like Malaysia, where you have highly subsidized healthcare, you still have these categorizations of B40, M40, et cetera. And their vulnerabilities are different, particularly when we come to chronic diseases, et cetera. So again, we're, we're seeing similar programs being launched um, in the region. One of the country I wanna highlight is Thailand. And the reason I wanna highlight it is because Thailand um, has been a darling of the international development community. Um, there was this idea that universal health coverage is um, an ambition uh, and a vision that only rich countries can afford or middle to rich income, um, uh, income countries. And I should state that actually Malaysia in sort of, in a notional sense, achieved universal health coverage in 1990. So Malaysia has a lot to be proud of. Um, but let me, going back to Thailand, um, Thailand decided in 2001 that their leadership, that they're going to, with uh, a relatively poorer country, achieve universal health coverage and the skeptics uh, abounded. And in 2002, they, well, I should say, it wasn't between 2001, 2002, there was a lot that was leading up to it, but by 2002, they did achieve universal health coverage and were considered to have one of the most robust systems of universal health coverage. Um, it was called the 30 bot scheme, um, which is only, uh, I, I don't know exactly in Ringgit, but let's say it's from uh, a US or a Singapore standpoint, a, a few dollars, um, where people paid minimally to access healthcare services. And the entire population was covered under one of three schemes. And it's been hailed as a model that um, even Western countries should look at how to cover entire populations for really affordable healthcare. And the Thai scheme has persisted despite a lot of political turmoil, election turmoil. People are very committed to this affordable scheme. And the reason I bring up Thailand, because we are seeing parallels with maybe some of the conversations in Malaysia. People have now been anchored to high quality uh, healthcare that really costs them nothing. 
And um, this is something that is hard to give up. And, and I, I think it's really understandable. You don't pay much. You feel like this is your right. And you've always been told it's your right. And you can access the coverage um, and the care that you need. And I think it's an aspiration that is still worth continuing. The reality in Thailand now is the same as the reality in Malaysia. You have the fastest aging population um, in Southeast Asia, perhaps outside of Singapore. Maybe it's even exceeded Singapore in Thailand. You have a rise in chronic diseases. Medical inflation uh, outstrips the regular inflation of goods and services. It's about 8%, whereas regular inflation might be 2 to 3%. And in this context, um, Thailand is having similar conversations in terms of what is the role of a social health? Um, well, they have a social health insurance program, but what is the role of a private insurance to help buttress the scheme? And so in Thailand, um, again, a, a much hailed program that suffers, that is now suffering from some of the same challenges that Malaysia, Indonesia, and others are trying to work their way through. Um, while there are contributions um, like in Indonesia um, through an employer-based system, one of the schemes is um, has a combination scheme where the state um, employers and employees themselves in the formal sector will contribute to the system. The reality is, is that the majority of health financing in Thailand, as it is in Malaysia, as it is in Indonesia, as it is in India, is still supported by the state. And, you know, I want to emphasize this point because as in, as in Malaysia, while these discussions are going on, you know, potentially introducing a social insurance or raising contributions, please do understand that government is still taking a huge weight and responsibility of the financing of health uh, healthcare systems. And I don't think that the fears are well placed to say that, you know, once we start bringing in more of the private sector, that means people are going to be more vulnerable. The government is giving up its responsibility. I actually think governments are trying to look at the long term, look at the long run and say, how do we make this work for generations to come? Um, so again, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, India, Thailand, all grappling with the same questions. Um, and if we look at Vietnam, same thing there, not very similar story. They have a social health insurance program. The coverage is over 90%. Once you get to that population coverage, everyone's asking, how do we increase the quality of care and how do we do it without bankrupting the state coffers? Do we have an answer for that? I mean, is and for Malaysia, we always look to Singapore, for instance, mm. um, as uh, being similar to us uh, culturally uh, and politically, but being able to achieve a lot more in terms of delivery of services. Um, so, what is the answer to the, the that question you raised about you know even if we have a financing model in place? Um, how do you then take the next step where it comes to the delivery of services to people? Yes, and um, if I had that perfect answer, I think I would be employed by every single ministry in the region. Um, a lot of really intelligent people and experts are, are really trying to solve that problem. One of the areas that I've been focusing on through the work at Access Health and with other stakeholders is looking at the role of private health insurance. So if we look at what are the avenues in which we can raise revenue for health financing, um, we can look at it in multiple ways. Uh, we can look at what the state is able to collect through taxes. 
uh, we can look at what people pay themselves. Again, not a great way of financing healthcare, but what people pay out of their own household. Um, a small sliver from charitable sources and donations. And then you have this interesting thing called private insurance. Now, the numbers are still not clear to me after looking at this for a long time in Malaysia, but I, I estimate that about 50% of the population have some form of private insurance and, and, pri and have with some component of private health insurance. Um, if you look at places like Indonesia, India, Vietnam, it is maybe less than 10%. And what we see is that private health insurance is potentially an undertapped avenue for raising funds and maybe co-sharing some of that burden, uh, financial burden with the state. And of course, we have to do this in a way that's viable and sustainable also for the insurance companies. But um, when you have risk pooling that is not only done by the state, but through private insurance, and you give people an option to be able to go to higher class wards or to have higher levels of reimbursement and to get coverage of uh, the drugs and the treatments that they need that are not necessarily covered by the state. Again, it, it helps people find a way to better channel their individual um, finances to paying premiums rather than being hit with a high healthcare cost when they have an event and they go to the hospital, et cetera. So I think what we've been really looking at is the innovations in private health insurance and how that's moving from a luxury product um, for rich people in informal sectors to something that is really intended to protect everybody and, and, and the masses. And what's really interesting and, and a topic that we haven't touched on too much today is the role of digital technologies and digitization that is, uh, I don't like to overuse the word, but democratizing access to financing and access to insurance. So if you... Um, look at companies like Policy Street in, Policy Street in Malaysia, Aspirasi, or um, Grab, or any of the digital companies that have a digital platform, these are great platforms on which people can start learning about insurance, finding private insurance products that they need that are tailored to their needs and tailored to their, you know, the price points where they can afford. So you don't have to have that high-end uh, package that is usually offered through, let's say, AIA or Prudential um, and whose premiums are affordable. But there are now uh, offshoots, even from those companies and other companies that are saying, we can start protecting you more. So you're not making these binary decisions. You're not insured at all. And, you know, you have to pay out of your pocket or you wait a really long time for government services. Um, and that's a, a space I'm really excited by. To give an example of um, where some of that inspiration coming is coming from, uh, several years ago, and forgive me for not knowing the exact date, um, China, the Chinese private sector launched um, a product called the Million RMB Insurance. And in my mind, this was revolutionary. It was a blockbuster product. It was, uh, for many people, the first health insurance that they ever bought. And it was delivered by a technology company, Zhongan Technology Company. But it wasn't a traditional player. It was a technology company. And the interesting features of this model was that it allowed people to get coverage of health insurance by paying a very small amounts. So I think at that one example I saw was about 30 RMB, so maybe one or two US dollars, very low amounts. Um, per month, 
and uh, they get a coverage of a million RMB, which is uh, several hundred thousand dollars US. That's significant. Um, and that, in my mind, was just something that didn't sound possible at all um, in, in these situations. And so the key to that was really um, having the million RMB modeled delivered digitally and offering a value proposition that um, people found insurance to be a no-brainer and they bought it. So it is the mass, the scale of it that allows them to underwrite uh, such huge returns. Is that right? That That's absolutely right. Um, and again, China, everyone is quick to point out, it's very different than in scale and size than Malaysia and many other countries, but there are components of it that I think are very relevant. Uh, the million RMB insurance, um, part of the way they achieve scale was by leveraging digital technology. WeChat, um, uh, you know, is a very popular platform in China. And the beauty about going through WeChat and other social media platforms is that's where your young people are. And in an, any kind of health insurance system, you want young people. And young people are not often thinking about insurance, but if you make it very cheap, you make it easy to buy, and you say, hey, I'm going to cover cancer, I'm going to cover this, and I'm going to cover that. Well, sure, you know, and, and I think that was the beauty about it. Now, there are um, elements of million RMB that reduced what we call moral hazard. So people are not unnecessarily using healthcare services, they had high deductibles, et cetera. But the important point is that with the advent of digital technology, you could start making the math work where if you bring the volume in, you can lower premiums, you can increase coverage. Um, and, and it's interesting to see how that penetration of the overall market approach uh, in, in China and other countries can be used to extend private health insurance to, uh, to the masses, essentially. So we've been talking a lot about how different countries are um, basically looking at funding models. And at the end of the day, what does it mean to the individual um, who's going into the healthcare system for um, either some common day-to-day -day, uh, medical needs or, you know, the, the kinds of crises that I guess, you know, may be inevitable for us in our aging society, but we all hope to avoid. And we're talking about major things like cancer, heart problems, um, stroke, et cetera. Um, so at the end of the day, when we are talking about trying to reform financing models so that uh, everyone can have affordable health care, what does it mean for these individuals um, as they go through their phases of life? Um, I might be an optimist, um, but I want people to understand that by and large countries are, and governments are trying to reform systems in a way that continue to protect you. And I say this, especially in the case of Malaysia, you have a great healthcare system and it has provided much to the people over many years and generations um, and I understand why people don't want that to change. However, for the government and for all of society to continue to provide that quality of healthcare for your kids, for your grandkids, some things are gonna have to change. Part of what it might mean is, uh, and again, I don't know the details of how this will pan out in Malaysia, is increasing uh, contributions, your contributions to healthcare system. If it comes in the form of social health insurance, this could be a deduction from a paycheck, or it could be uh, an extra sort of requirement to uh, pay for your healthcare or increasing co-payments when you actually 
go and utilize the services. Um, and from what I understand in Malaysia and seeing this play out in other countries, it's not going to be an extraordinary jump. It should be something that still falls within a reasonable range where, again, you are um, paying something in the system, but you're not going to go bankrupt paying into that system to do it. In fact, what's important is the more that individuals are able to contribute to the system and the government state coffers can rise, that's going to help prevent people from having to turn to the private sector, um, let's say in the case of if you're going to the public sector, for your higher end treatments. And so I think that's very um, important to recognize that um, maybe a little bit less so in Malaysia, but in many other countries, people are spending a lot of their own financing to access the private sector. And in fact, that is true in Malaysia. Out-of-pocket payments have been rising. Um, so I think it's it's a way to buttress and increase the sustainability of your health financing system. It's just the reality. Um, I think the other implication is for um, seeing what are the options that are now arising in terms of how you finance your healthcare. It could be traditionally how you pay through taxes, et cetera. But now there is a whole suite of options that are coming through private insurance, fintech, um, and other routes that are really worth observing. And um, it's, it's, there was a Singapore FinTech Festival about a, a two weeks ago. It was amazing to hear some of these companies, how they're having a Lego-like approach to developing health insurance in a way that is affordable, in a way that caters to what people want. And I think that's really exciting. And in the context of Malaysia, for a lot of people, it really matters abiding by Islamic principles. So talk of full insurance and financing is another very important area. So I think it's, again, I'm positive. Things are going in, in a direction where yes, you will pay more, but you will have more options and you can be uh, sure that your kids, your grandkids and future generations will not have to worry in the same way you haven't had to worry. Mm. And uh, we've been talking so much about bringing in this idea of the co-payments or the contributions from each of us, right? Because, And I bring that up because it's really interesting, the political parties going and the coalitions going into the election uh, this weekend. Uh, have put out manifestos and some of them have been promising to increase um, the uh, public health care spending uh, to 5% of GDP, which is this magic number, right? But um, there's very little nuance there in how this 5% is going to be achieved. And if people are assuming that that's going to come purely from state coffers, well, that money is coming from somewhere, isn't it? Uh, and it's a huge amount we're talking about. Uh, if we are at about 2%, 2 point something percent now, we're talking about doubling that. And yeah, the question that people should be thinking about is um, that they are going to have to be part of increasing that quantum, right? Correct. And I don't want to also deny that, uh, again, without knowing the nuances of Malaysia, that increasing government expenditures for healthcare is, is not a bad idea as well. You very well might want to increase it to 5% uh, because of the rise in medical inflation, aging population, chronic diseases. But as you said, that money has to come from somewhere. And we find that a lot of governments are underspending on healthcare for really what this population requirements are. So I think the calls for increased government spending is really important and it's well-placed, but again, how do we do it? And I, if you talk to policymakers, be it in Malaysia or elsewhere, 
they understand and they actually agree, but they said, now, where do we do this? You know, where does the money come from? And I think um, as, as popular as it is to say, you're going to get wonderful healthcare services and you don't have to pay anything for it, it it's, it's just not working anymore. Um, and again, when you have uh, less and less people of uh, working age, you have more older populations, you have to start looking at how do we diversify the sources of financing? How do we increase the contributions and you know, raise the rates of those contributions? And a very pertinent question in many of the countries is how much deficit are we willing to bear to pay for health care costs? Um, in Indonesia and India and in many of the countries, this is, I mean, they're probably billions of dollars in deficit. I can't remember the exact number, maybe millions of dollars, but there's a massive deficit that even at the launch of their universal health coverage programs, they knew that if everyone decided to utilize the healthcare services they need, the state would be ultimately bankrupt. So I think now we've gotten the political commitment, we have the willpower, we have mechanisms in place. How do we sustain it for the long term? We've got to make tough decisions here. And when it comes to timing, um, is there such a thing as the right time to introduce um, these decisions, these reforms? I mean, Indonesia and India are very complex geopolitical environments, um, mm-hmm. a, a lot more disparate than Malaysia, for instance, and, and yet they did it, right? So um, for Malaysia at this point, we've come through a pandemic, um, we have um, electoral changes on the horizon. Uh, and if we look at um, how countries like Indonesia and India have done it, um, you know, what do you think in terms of timing for our government? whoever the next government may be? You know, it seems whenever we talk to um, people who have been heavily involved in this area that no time seems like the right time and every time there is some challenge. And it, it's painful, like I said, especially in, in, in a country like Malaysia where people are generally happy with their healthcare system. I think more than timing, it's political will and leadership. And I think that's something... Uh, the weight and burden of that leadership cannot just fall in the Ministry of Health. It has to be something taken at the highest levels of government at the head of state level and say, look, this is a national priority. Maybe it's national security. It's an economic interest and get all of the sectors, all of the governments on board to say, what role do we have in making this model and this vision work? Because good health means a solid basis for everything else we do as a country. So I would say less timing, more leadership, and a bit of ability to take some political risks. Now, we did allude to Singapore a couple of times when, you know, since I'm based here, uh, Singapore has done a great job of achieving universal health coverage, and it has introduced mixed models of financing. We do have a system of private insurance and public insurance that works together Uh, One thing that has helped in sustaining um, a strong base of health financing is political continuity. For better or for worse, uh, you know, having basically the same party in government for a long time has allowed for that stability. I think, though, in contrast, Thailand is very important. They don't have, they've had many successions of government, but once universal health coverage was introduced, no one wanted to touch it, despite being on opposite parties. It was something that was ultimately owned by the people. Um, And I would say it's not different in Malaysia, but for Malaysia, we've come at a point where you have some tough decisions to make. You need some tough leaders to make it. 
communicate, communicate, communicate the why and how and how this benefits people. I don't think it should be thrown on people. Um, otherwise, you'll have various factions telling you why it's it's a bad idea. Um, but I'm I'm very interested to see what will happen in the next few months, the next few days, in fact, in Malaysia, um, and because that's going to have great implications for um, the sustainability of health systems in Malaysia. And I'm glad with the two examples of Singapore and Thailand, kind of a contrast to each other in terms of political situation, we, we can use that to show that you know, you can distinguish political will and commitment from politicking, right? Mm -hmm. And you can say, I have the political will to um, push through universal health coverage and health reforms, despite what may come in um, GE15 this weekend. Sejal, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me today. I know um, this could be a longer conversation and I'm sure there will be opportunities to continue um, exploring the nuances hopefully with uh, some more breakthroughs in the next um, year or so for Malaysia. I've been speaking to Sejal Mistry, Regional Director of Southeast Asia from Access Health International for Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.